ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Jen Williams, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy, sitting in for Amy McKinnon, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we try to expose you to something new by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, we're featuring an episode from the second season of FP's own series, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, or HERO for short. Each episode looks at ways to economically empower women around the world. Today's episode focuses on a conversation with Melinda Gates and economist Esther Duflo. In just a minute, we're going to play the episode. But first, I talked with Rena Nynan, the host of Hero, about the series and how it came to be. Rena Nynan, thank you so much for joining us today on Foreign Policy Playlist. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. So your podcast is called Hero, which stands for The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Now, this is the show's second season, which congratulations. Some listeners may already be familiar with the show, but for those who aren't or who could maybe use a reminder, tell us a little bit about the name of the show, where that idea for it came from, kind of what the thinking was behind it. Yes. So The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a look at women all across the globe, how they are trying to not move up in the ladder, just get a rung on the ladder. And how do you do that when you're balancing childcare issues? We're essentially looking at female entrepreneurs who might not have the funding or the ability or even society behind them to start their own businesses and a look at how it can help with global poverty and help transform our global economies. That's amazing. Um, and, you know, in season one, for those who haven't heard it, I highly recommend go listen to season one. We heard from women, you know, across the globe, from Kenya to Ethiopia to India. So I wonder if you could just give us kind of a sense, uh, without spoilers, of course, we want people to listen to this season. But what are some of the places we're going to maybe go in season two? What are some of the stories we're going to hear? And then just kind of more generally, how did you guys think about doing a second season and, and kind of maybe what to do differently or what stories to explore this time around? Well, a lot of it, I was really fascinated by this concept of female entrepreneurs, that somehow if you live in the West, okay, you can get a bank loan or find the group that might help you, help mentor you and move you into become an entrepreneur. But what if your only means abroad is just cooking and cleaning? And and I don't want to say just, but people don't see you as having the ability or the means to create a livelihood that could help move your family out of poverty. 
So in this season, we're really looking at what are the tools that we can provide women in different countries from Africa to Pakistan to Indonesia? What can we do that really works? And one of the things that we are constantly looking at is data, how having data can really transform thinking of governments because it's right there in plain sight. So for me, you know, I am a journalist and I ended up becoming an entrepreneur for the past two years. And so for me, it's been so personally fulfilling because as I'm on this entrepreneurial journey, I'm looking at women that don't even have the means or ability and how they are able to start these businesses. And it's been so eye-opening. Tell me a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, You know, I've worked as a foreign correspondent and White House correspondent and news anchor. And under COVID, I was uh, laid off and was forced to sort of rethink things as so many people were in that boat. And I knew instantly that it sounds crazy, but this was an opportunity because for so long I wanted to start my own media company. And so I founded Good Trouble Productions. And one of my issues with TV news is that they kind of focus on stories and then they move on and they're never revisited or looked into in depth in the way foreign policy looks at foreign issues and, and really gives you good context and color long after people have moved on in the story. So um, that's what I focused on and female entrepreneurship and Income inequality are two huge things that I'm very, very personally interested in. And I think that's what you'll get out of this podcast is a sense of that. That's so cool. I, I think that's that really brings a lot to the show, right? This isn't something that's theoretical for you, right? This is an yeah. experience you're currently going through. So I imagine you can relate so much to the women that you're speaking with. Totally. You're absolutely right. And I think we look at poverty, and I hope this is how people see it. You know, how do I make people understand Global poverty also affects you, even though you might not see these women or interact or be related to them. As my producer, Laura Rossbrow-Tallum, and I were looking at the research and and finding these women's stories, it really amazed me at how much I could relate to them, of their ability looking for capital, you know, just having a cell phone, how that can transform their ability to get access to that capital, but also some basic things like how they're creating a women's sisterhood, you know, a cooperative that'll allow them to trade secrets and talk about their struggles. And I think that's also relevant in the West as we're all dealing with it. And by the way, our first interview is with Melinda Gates and Nobel Prize economist Esther Duflo, who's done a great deal of studying global poverty. And in that interview, I actually had a moment where I'm struggling with my own childcare as I'm trying to do this interview with, you know, Melinda Gates and this amazing economist. And I think it's something like these are the things that really are preventing women all across the world from rising up and getting a foothold that could really help transform the lives of their families. Yeah, that's one of the things that struck me too, listening to the episode. And I know, you know, our listeners are going to hear it here in just a second. But um, it was really fascinating saying, I think you were saying that you were watching the clock because your kids were about to come home. And you were like, Oh, God, you know, there's nothing in the fridge. What am I going to do for dinner? And, you know, this is such a universal experience for so many women around the world. There were some other really interesting parts in the episode. Um, and again, I don't want to give too many spoilers away because it's such a just a vibrant conversation that you have with these two remarkable women. And Esther, you know, as you said, Nobel Prize winning economist for the, the research and work she's done on, on alleviating poverty. And I love that you guys talk about data and like looking at what really works and, you know, getting I think there's a part about cash transfers, right? And, and how getting, you know, cash, dollars, actual currency, like right into the hands of women in 
particular, literally their cell phones, right? Transferring money into their hands and how that just kind of changes everything. There was this amazing line uh, that really stuck with me about how uh, this woman was saying, you know, when I have cash, my son looks at me differently, or, you know, my husband looks at me differently. My mother-in-law looks at me differently. What resonated with you about that? It's so interesting you mentioned that and you say that resonated because it really, really touched me as well because I think part of it is you don't realize, I take for granted that I've worked all my life and been able to earn a living and not everyone has that ability or that acceptance or that support to go out and, and make a living. I was really surprised this season at the little things that we can all do that can really transform the lives of people in these countries. It doesn't take much. And that was sort of the shocking thing to me. And as as Esther Duflo, the economist, and the other data scientists and the people we talked to explain, we delve deeper into more than just microfinancing. We look at what are the things that are proven to really work. And we look at the data. And I think when you piece those two together, it's really remarkable how much change you can achieve with these little tiny efforts that can be so transformative. Yeah. One of the other things I think um, I found really remarkable, I do foreign policy stuff for a living. I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, but obviously, you know, economics touches every piece of, of foreign policy. And, you know, one of the things that I think struck me that was really surprising was the, the fact that India has lower women's labor force participation than even Saudi Arabia. And I think that really just as someone who my background is in the Middle East, I went, what? <laughs> I actually kind of paused the podcast and went, oh my God, really? And it was fascinating to me to learn that. And I think something that I wonder, you know, that, that kind of made me think about is the idea of norms, societal norms versus, you know, social structures and economic kind of ability, right? So we think of, you know, maybe some of the um, the norms that we think of kind of stereotypically in Saudi Arabia, maybe we don't think about that happening in India, or maybe we don't think about just the, the ability of women in, in India to be able to actually have, you know, the childcare, the financing, et cetera, to make their own way. And I'm just wondering, were there any other kind of surprises like that for you in the show? or anything that really just kind of made you rethink the way you thought about these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. I think why that number just stands out is there's this sort of entire workforce that's completely paid under the table, right? They're not the domestic workers, the cleaners, the people who are working in the fields that they don't have unions, they, they don't have rights, they don't have someone putting into their 401k. And I think that type of labor isn't accounted for. There's just no opportunity and there's no system in place to hold people accountable, to be like, I've worked this much, I deserve a promotion, I want to be thought of for this position because they're paid under the table, they're paid in cash quietly, and if their boss decides not to pay them, there's no recourse. So I think looking at that labor force that is unregulated and so important, yet doesn't have the same rights that those of us who are gainfully employed and getting the benefits that we're due, they just don't have access to that. And and so looking at that, that particular sector is something we do as well. Yeah. Rena, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, for doing this show. We're really excited. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be interviewed by you. And um, I'm looking forward to it. was Rena Nyman. And here now is the episode from the hidden economics of remarkable women, what Melinda French Gates and Esther Duflo think women need right now. 
Around the world, women face barriers preventing them from rising up out of poverty, many of them legal. What we were trying to do was to declare Section 21.2 of the Matrimonial Property Act as unconstitutional. Globally, women have about three quarters of the legal rights that men have. We want a better life for our families, we want a good, good home, we want to send our children to better schools, but we don't have the wherewithal to do that. And for women dreaming to start their own business, the cost can be high too. I did not take a loan when I started newly because they're too expensive. You know, you only have commercial banks giving double-digit interest rate loans. Total, you could be paying 30% a year in interest. To give you an idea of how rigged this system is against women, consider this statistic. There are about 75 countries where women still do not have the same rights as men to inherit property. Why can't women gain the same footing or economic freedom as their male counterparts? And what really works for improving female financial independence? I'm Rena Ninen, and we're excited to return with season two of Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy. Throughout the season, we're going to delve into the bigger barriers blocking women financially and follow the brave people challenging their communities and countries to advance themselves and the global economy. Childcare is one of the biggest ways to support women's ability to return to work. But it's hard to do cheaply. The Sewa Union of Informal Women Workers in India has more than 2 million members, and they've provided childcare to thousands of working class women for years. Sheila is a vegetable vendor, and before Sheila was able to send her son to a Sewa childcare center, work was much harder for her. I was facing a lot of difficulties. My child was annoying me all the time. I could neither go out for work nor could I do any household work. But now, my child is attending a childcare center, which is beneficial to me. I can go out for work, he is at the center, and when he comes back at 4 p.m., I also come back by that time. I feel good about it. He is smart now and studies well, and I am relaxed because they take care of my childlike family. As you can hear, affordable, quality childcare really can be transformational, both for children and their mothers, who now have the time in their day to actually take on jobs or start a business. But how can we scale up organizations like Sewa that are providing the childcare infrastructure needed for many mothers to work? And how can we better support women in general? For a macro look at the issue, I'm excited to share my conversation with philanthropist and advocate Melinda French-Gates. Melinda is a co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which supports this podcast. We're also joined by renowned economist Esther Duflo. She won the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences in 2019 for her experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. So I actually have a confession. I am watching the clock. I've got 55 minutes before the kids come in through the door. I have nothing in the fridge, and I'm thinking of all the things that moms and women do every day in addition to their work. You look at the statistics, it's pretty startling. Access to childcare for women who don't have it, it could be a $3 trillion difference, an increase in global GDP, if we did something about it. Melinda, I know you've traveled all over the world, visiting people from all walks of life. 
What do you think is the biggest barrier for women right now? I think this unpaid work that women do every single day, whether it's cooking meals or whether it's childcare or whether it's elder care. And women are telling us all over the world, look, I want to go back to work, but I don't have high quality childcare for my child. And in fact, there was a survey just done in South Africa and Kenya and Nigeria, and the top three things that women say they need right now to get back to work or just restart their job, it's childcare. So this is a serious issue and one that if we invest in, we could really change things for women. Mm. And Esther, I'm very well aware. You know, I'm in a position where I can pay for childcare. I have that option. Most of the women across the world do not have that option. You co-founded the Abdul Latif Jamel Poverty Action Lab. And in 2019, you were jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Science for what was described as an experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. What did the data show you? What really works in reducing poverty? Well, reducing poverty is a big undertaking. So the first thing that works in reducing poverty is to break down the problem in a myriad of smaller, easier to manage and to grapple with problems. There was a series, for example, of experiments comparing in very poor countries, extremely poor countries, comparing cash transfer and food transfer, impact on nutrition. This is a series of work that was done by the CGIR, the Agricultural Research Institute is that across all of these countries, giving money has the same effect as giving food, but giving money is much cheaper because delivering food is terribly complicated. During the COVID pandemic, several countries very quickly get transfers into the hands of their people. Another one is Togo. In Togo, they managed in a matter of three to four weeks to convince their phone operators to go onto one platform for transferring money to the poor. And therefore, what they could do literally six weeks into the pandemic is that whenever they needed to do a lockdown, they could immediately get money into the hands, into the cell phone, literally, of people and support them during the pandemic. And you look at the statistics, implementing cash transfer programs that target women as part of COVID-19 relief could lift 100 million women out of poverty. That's according to the Eurasia Group. Melinda, what about the pushback that this concept of you give a woman a fish, she eats for a day, you teach her how to fish, she eats for a lifetime. Why are cash transfers different? Well, cash transfers, when done well, just as Esther said, like as Togo is done, when they're targeted in the hands of women, women know what they need for their family, what type of food, what type of job they could create. They are very entrepreneurial. And so what we know is these cash transfer payments in women's hands actually lead to empowerment. So what does empowerment look like? It feels like an amorphous term, but when you go out and talk to these women all over the world, they will tell you. They say, if it's in India, my mother-in-law sees me differently when I have cash. My son sees me differently when I have a little bit of cash and I've created a business and then eventually I can buy him a bike. My husband sees me differently when I have cash. So what we know is that little bit of cash can start a woman on a path. So if I can build up on that, there was a very interesting experiment in India, in Madhya Pradesh, where they really managed to get, there is a workfare program there, and the women and men work for it, but the money was kind of pulled together into a joint account. 
And a group of researchers, they managed to really separate them, make sure that the money gets separately awarded to the women or to the men. So the money that was on to the woman went into the woman bank's account in a way that was very well identified and linked again to their cell phone. And what they found, which was really interesting, is that one of the main outcomes of this extra empowerment is women were actually seeking out other work. Because one of the things that women want to do is to work. India is one of the countries in the world with the lowest labor force participation of women, lower even than Saudi Arabia both due to the burden they have at home and due to social norms, to be honest. So when women get this extra cash on hand, what did they use the power that it brought with the mother-in-law, with the husband, etc., to get more work? You're listening to the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Welcome back to the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production by Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainen. I'm talking today with Melinda French Gates and economist Esther Duflo. In this next part of our conversation, they share more ways how we can all support women better, and they also get a bit personal. Melinda, what do you feel really works when it comes to getting female entrepreneurs in developing countries up and running and just a foothold on the ladder? Well, just as Esther has said, is you, you do. You have to look at the micro before you can get to the macro. You have to, at the micro setting, get into what are the social norms that are there and how might you change them. Quite often, if you have a self-help group, a group of women banded together, they support one another. If you can bring men into those conversations, I've seen amazing work done where men become part of the conversation and then it opens their eyes and they say, wait a minute, we can help solve this. There's no reason a woman can't go to the clinic earlier in the day. We can help transport them. We can help with the water. So it's when men and women sit down collectively and start to realize and bring out on the table, what are we doing? What do we believe? Oh, let's commit to changing that. And it's why I've become so passionate about making sure that we both talk about women's stories and where we really are in the world, we have to bring men into this conversation. They're the only ones that are going to help us change this, right? So we've got to work on both the micro and the macro and realize there are barriers that hold women back. And yet when we do things, we empower them with loans. We empower them with knowledge. We pull men into the conversation to support them. We can actually change societies and change the world. Esther, I want to ask you as well, you know, in this moment, Um, Linda was talking sort of about post-COVID, where we are, how we move forward from where we're at right now. You know, data is really your weapon in explaining what works in addressing poverty. And at least right now, we know inflation's on the rise. We know that inflation greatly affects the poor. What do you feel is needed right now in this moment that could make a difference? 
I think things are, the situation is very different in richer countries than in poorer countries. Rich countries during the pandemic spent about 22 to 23% of their GDP in fiscal stimulus measures and have successfully, uh, largely, uh, protected their population, poorest in their population, against the worst of the COVID crisis from an economic point of view. Of course, not from a health point of view. And sure, there is inflation, but there is also a lot of job around and people are making money and people don't like inflation. But at the end of the day now, the economic outlook in the US is, is very good uh, and similarly in Europe, actually. So in the poor countries, the story is a bit different or radically different. When the rich countries spend 23% of their GDP on fiscal stimulus measure, a middle-income country spend 6%, the poorest country spend 2% of a much smaller GDP. Which means basically that, you know, with the, despite the example we gave for, from Togo, which after having developed this wonderful system, couldn't find any money to fund it, Basically, what happened is that they weren't able to protect their population or their economy or their entire systems from the COVID-19 crisis. So what do we need to do now? Like we need to go back to, we need to rebuild. And we can, we haven't done it once. We, it's going to take, it's not going to be instant. It's going to take a lot of ingenuity, a lot of effort, a lot of money, hopefully some amount of solidarity from the Western world. Melinda, a few months ago, you told me that one of the last places you visited right before this pandemic was South Africa, just incredibly devastated by the situation with COVID. What's your biggest worry for countries around the world as women are trying to get a foothold and deal with the issues that they deal with at home, but also generate an income? And what gives you the most hope? I think what concerns me the most is exactly what Esther's talking about. It's what we call the economic scarring that happens in countries. And just as she said, the high-income countries were able to invest and put more into their social safety nets to hopefully get people back on their feet much more quickly. You know, we should have learned a lesson after Ebola in 2014 where it affected basically four West countries in West Africa. What we saw after that, what went through those countries is men's jobs came back but many of the women's jobs never came back. And that is devastating for those families and for those economies writ large. So what can we do? Exactly what Esther said, we have got, the Western countries have got to come together and use all their tools in their economic toolbox to make sure that we actually put money into these countries. We are a global community. We do care about our fellow human beings. And we have global trade now. And so if we want to get a full and total economic recovery around the world, we need to help these countries get back on their feet. Both of you women have spent so much of your careers trying to uplift women who don't have much. I want to start with you, Melinda. Why is it that you're so passionate and you spend so much time focused in parts of the world where others wouldn't even travel? Well, first of all, I'm incredibly lucky that I can even travel, right? That I could even have childcare at the time for my kids when I would go to places in Africa. But I think it's the connection. I have just met so many incredible people in country after country, in Africa, in various places in Africa, or in Bangladesh, or in India. And when you sit down and talk to men and women and talk to them about their hopes and their dreams, 
So often, they're exactly the same hopes and dreams we have here in the United States or in the UK or in France, which is we want our children to be able to reach their full potential. And when you're in a position as fortunate as I'm in that I never expected to be in in life, you say, wow, if I can do a little something to contribute to that, that's what I want to do. And it, it certainly gives my life meaning. And those deep connections I've been able to make with people, they've changed my life probably even more than I will change theirs. Mm. I think it really starts with what Melinda said, which is, what if I had been born in, an, in other circumstances? So when I was a child, my mother was traveling. She, she's a doctor, she's a pediatrician. She was involved in an NGO of doctors uh, helping children victims of war. So she was going places for some weeks at the time and would come back and, and tell us, this is what you're doing for the world. You are allowing me to go. And then would discuss these things with us. And from that age, I kept thinking, I could have been born any of these kids. I could have been the little girl who is walking two kilometers to get water. And then from that time, around eight or nine, I've been thinking, what do I do to justify the incredible luck that I have to be born in an upper middle class family in France instead of a poor family in Congo. I, I haven't done anything to deserve that and that yet that happened so I better do something to deserve it now. So it's kind of I was always looking for what it was gonna be. Well I love intrepid women who take their flashlights and shine it in places others won't go so I want to thank you guys so much for this conversation and, and for opening up our new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this, Rena. Many thanks to Melinda French-Gates and Esther Duflo. Melinda French-Gates is the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's also the founder of Pivotal Ventures and author of The Moment of Lift, which is all about her work on gender equality. Esther Duflo is an MIT professor, Nobel Prize-winning economist, and author of Good Economics for Hard Times and Poor Economics, a radical rethinking of the way to fight global poverty. The phrase global community, the recognition of how interconnected we all are today through social media and video conferencing, the lightning speed in which information can be shared and transactions can be made. That's a global side of it. But the community aspect of it is just as important. For so long, things that happened in other parts of the world were out of sight and out of mind. It was something happening to other people. In modern times, we don't have that luxury anymore. And while that may feel like a burden for some, it can also be an opportunity. As we continue with the series, we hope to inform and inspire you to find a place where you can also make a difference to take action or to speak up to leaders and decision makers. Because as we mentioned, identifying injustice is only the first step. The next is pushing for change. Next week, we'll have the story of a courageous South African woman who took on the entire judicial system of her country and while all her worldly possessions and even her safety were at stake. Agnes, what were you scared of the most in this process? My life. My life. Your life? Yes. Why? When somebody doesn't like you anymore and when somebody has got some 
influences from outside who don't know what he, he, he might think. He might think this is the best way to, to end the courts. I'm sure he was tired himself of going to the courts. There was going to be one way of ending it, but I wasn't going to get out of my house. He discriminated between African married couples and all other races in South Africa. More on Agnes's fight for justice next week. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and made possible through the funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Brina Nainan. Laura Rossbrow-Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julen, Megan Cattell, Anissa Pazeshki, Simone Perez, and Dan Efron. Special thanks this week to all the people who helped make our conversation with Melinda French-Gates and Esther Duflo possible. That includes Amy Jarrett, Laura Dickinson, Bo Youngmeyer, Sam Beach, Lynn Thompson, Heather McCurdy, Rimjim Day, and thank you to Ketki Gujar and Miraben Chatterjee, who connected us to Sheila from Seva. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back next week. And that was the first episode of Season 2 from FP's The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, What Melinda French-Gates and Esther Duflo Think Women Need Right Now. You can listen to the first season of Hero wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. My thanks to Rena Nainen and the podcast team for letting us feature this episode. And that's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Jen Williams. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.